reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Nick. Um, Given Aaron's video that we just watched, uh, you may know that we're looking at that third title for the Messiah today, the Everlasting Father. Um, Aaron Vakurovich, who that video was of, her uh, husband Will is a pastor at Tempe, so obviously she attends Tempe, but she also works very closely with Redemption, Foster Care, and Adoption, and you can probably understand why uh, she does that as well, telling us a little bit of her story. Uh, Before we get into all of that, though, I have some other announcements. Uh, A number of people have emailed and have texted and have asked, and so if there's a few people that are asking about it, I know there are other people who are wondering as well about uh, year-end giving and and how to um, make sure that it's done properly so that you get the right credit for this this tax year as opposed to next year. Um, uh, Next Uh, Not next Sunday. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve, but then the following Sunday is New Year's Eve. We're going to have our regular services. We're going to be here at 9, 10, 45, and 5. Yes, we're going to do the 5 on New Year's Eve. We thought it would be good to have a, you know, a church service before everybody went out on New Year's Eve. That might help a little bit. Um, But if you get us uh, your year-end giving on that Sunday, even though we can't get it into the uh, bank necessarily on that Sunday, as long as we've received it by the 31st, uh, it'll count towards uh, the, the um, 2017 tax year. Obviously, if you give online and you do that before the 31st, that'll work uh, as well. And just a reminder, um, a lot of people wait till year end to give uh, larger gifts to the church because of they're, they're waiting to see how their, uh, their year turns out and their business is doing, and, and that's great. We appreciate that. But also, our Advent offering is, is during this month as well. Uh, just a reminder, there's, there's a bunch of things, there are a bunch of things that we're doing for Advent. Uh, one of them is uh, we're helping with affordable Christmas over at the Alhambra congregation, and that's actually today. And I know that a number of you are scheduled to be over at Alhambra later on today from any time between 1 and 7 helping, and we appreciate that, and so does uh, Alhambra. We've also been giving items to uh, the Refugee Women's Health Clinic, and we, <clears throat> we, we have a ton of things for them already, so we're thankful for that. And then there are three ways uh, that you can give your money. Actually, you, if you give your money to the Advent offering, there's three things that we're doing uh, with that. We're uh, giving to um, Alongside Ministries. We're giving to um, the uh, uh, Hope for Children in Ethiopia. And then a third of it is going to go to Alhambra's uh, Community Center. And for those of you that weren't here two weeks ago, I want to show you this uh, video one more time from Aaron thanking us for that. Hey, everybody. This is Aaron with Redemption Alhambra. And I am standing in the Storyboard Learning Center. 
This place has been a blessing. A year ago, we started dreaming of what God could do to use this space that God's given to us as a church to bless our neighborhood. Alhambra is a broken place, but God is at work here and we're seeing him do incredible things. So we wanted to create a place where we could partner with community development organizations and use this space for people of all types of backgrounds, all types of walks to come in and learn and grow and be developed. And we've already been seeing that happen this first year as we've been opening up. Redemption Arcadia, I just wanna thank you so much for how you supported us. I think of last year when we started raising for the Learning Center, you came out and ran with us and helped raise money through the run. And now to hear this year that you're gonna be giving to the Learning Center through your Advent offering is humbling. Thank you so much for the ways that you have supported us. Here's where the money's gonna go. We're gonna finish the courtyard. There's some touch-ups there, some security issues, finishing around the playground. We're gonna finish the community garden and money is gonna go towards our tech lab and finishing all of those things this year. And we're so excited that you're gonna be a part of that. Thank you so much, Redemption Arcadia, for your support and prayers. For those of you that don't know, many of you have heard the story, but that, that property that Alhambra has, it's about five and a half acres. It includes a, a gym and a sanctuary. Um, it's 80 years old, and it was gifted to us about four years ago from an American Lutheran church. They just handed it over to uh, Redemption Church. So already, it's just a miracle that that's happening. Uh, last year, they got started on this community center, and a, a contractor from the Gilbert congregation uh, gave more than $100,000 in labor and materials in kind to be able to help build it. And now they're just finishing up with some, uh, some other items. Uh, Aaron believes, Aaron um, uh, Daly, who's the pastor at, at Alhambra, believes that about $40,000 will be able to uh, finish it up. Obviously, that congregation is in a really uh, under-resourced and depressed area. And, and so uh, the fact that we're willing to help is a big deal to him. Uh, one of the great joys is that uh, after we said that we were going to do this, we found out that we're not the only congregation that's doing a third of our Advent offering to Alhambra for this. Uh, the Gateway congregation is also doing it. Gateway is about four times the size of uh, Arcadia in terms of attendance and, and giving. It's our second largest uh, congregation of the 10 congregations. And so we believe that between Gateway and us, we should be able to cover pretty close to this $40,000. So be, be, just be in prayer about that. It's a wonderful thing, I think, that we're doing uh, in all three of these offerings, but especially for uh, Alhambra. One other calendar note that I just, I, I want to impress upon you. So Kind of like junior high teaching now. Everybody look up here. Look up here. Okay. All right. On January 14th, does anybody know that Sunday what large Phoenix event takes place? Anybody? The Rock and Roll Marathon. No, not the NFC playoffs for crying out loud. It's the Rock, especially not in Phoenix this year. Anyway, it's the Rock and Roll Sorry, guys. It's the Rock and Roll Marathon, which goes right down Camelback, which means it is virtually impossible to get to church on Sunday morning, January 14th. Uh, now, I know that it's kind of possible because last year, even though we made this announcement 15,000 times, we had three or four people still fight their way. Uh, it, took, it took me 90 minutes to get to church, but I got there, and then you weren't there. Yeah, we weren't there. 
because we weren't going to fight 90 minutes to get. Anyway, don't come to church Sunday morning the 14th. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to have our second annual church picnic that day. We're going to have a 3 o'clock service in here for one hour, and then at 4 o'clock, we're all going to head out that way toward the grass and everything. And, and just like last year, we're going to have all the blow-up bouncy toys, and we're going to have, unlike last year, this year the food's going to be amazing. We're going to have um, Bruce Brown is going to come, and he's going to cook hamburgers and hot dogs for us. He's going to have his green chili macaroni and cheese and all of that for us. And so we're going to have a picnic out there. Um, afterwards, and I think Stephanie has a dessert food truck that's going to show up uh, as well that we're going to take care of for you. So mark it down, January 14th, and if you forget and you're on your way to church and it becomes suddenly clear that it's very difficult to get to church, maybe then you'll remember, oh yeah, Frank said something about this, okay? So three o'clock, one service, and then the church picnic. All right, let's get to the scripture. Advent. Advent is a, is a time when we certainly do look back at the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Savior, but it is also a time when we are looking forward to him, the advent of him coming again, and we're excited about that. And it's interesting, uh, last week, Cody talked about the mighty God aspect of this. And one, it was a great, first of all, it was a really powerful sermon. And if you haven't heard it, you should, you should listen to it uh, on the podcast. But one of the best points that he made is why didn't um, Jesus just come the way he's going to come in Revelation the first time? And the reason is because he needs to come to offer salvation and redemption to us first. He is going to come as the judge. That is true. But he comes first as the Savior. And we're in that era right now when we can engage with Jesus as, as our Savior. Even though we live in this world that is corrupted by sin, we can experience, uh, experience redemption for our souls right now and a foretaste of the kingdom that is going to come in its fullness when Jesus comes again. Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's ushering in the kingdom. So there is a presence of the kingdom here now that we must live into. But it has not come fully just yet. And it is coming in redemption. And so we look ahead with hope to him coming again. And again, just to remind you of the four titles of the Messiah that we're looking at um, th this uh, Advent uh, verse 6 of Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's what we looked at the first week. Uh, Mighty God, that's what Cody talked about last week. Everlasting Father, that's what we're talking about today. And then next week, the Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. There's a pastor and theologian named David Sunday. Isn't that a great name for a pastor and theologian? I love that. Anyway, he writes this in an essay, a recent essay. Few words in any language evoke the varied and kind of feelings we have when we hear the word father. Some of us will feel a sense of loss this Christmas season, either because we had fathers who were wonderful but are no longer with us, or because we have unfulfilled longings for the kind of father we've never had. Perhaps we even have difficult memories. 
Of all the names attributed to Jesus in Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father intrigues me the most because it's the one I understand the least. Sadly, the word father doesn't always bring to mind someone who shepherds, affirms, and stays close. Instead, it connotes adjectives like distant, aloof, passive, absent, unreliable, selfish, uncaring, and cruel. And so as we looked at this Advent schedule and knew that this particular title was coming up and that there was no way I could slough this off on Cody, I had to handle it myself, I tend to give him the harder stuff. Uh, I started asking my que- myself this question, what do we do with this third title of, of the Messiah, this everlasting title? Because I know it's a difficult, it's a difficult title. I, I work a little bit in academia, and father is one of those words that you're not supposed to use around colleges, ever, because it evokes such a problem for so many people. Uh, again, though, let's hear the content. Let me just read again. I know you must be you must be thinking, I'm, I'm an expert on Isaiah 9, 2 through 6 now, but let me read it again just to give you that context. Isaiah writes this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This is Isaiah saying that even though the Assyrians are coming, and it's going to be brutal, and it's going to be ugly, and, and we anticipate all of this trouble At some point, God is still going to send his Messiah, his Redeemer, and his light is going to shine, and things will be made right. We're going to have to go through the tumult uh, uh, for a time, but things will be made right. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Notice he's using these past tense verbs uh, to describe something that's going to come in the future. That's That's a literary technique to help the reader understand that even though this hasn't happened yet, and even though there is darkness in the land right now, we have the light to look forward to with great hope. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, and remember the, the word Messiah means the anointed one. This is God's one redeemer. Savior. He's the Lamb of Lambs. He's the perfect Lamb. He's the one that we point back to for centuries, and He's the one that we point ahead to and have been for centuries, and and maybe still will for centuries. We, We know that the Lord is coming again soon, but we struggle with that word soon. How many years in a God's soon? The problem is, is it could be hundreds and hundreds more. It just depends on when God is ready. I will tell you this. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be at exactly the right time because that's the time that God has anointed. But the point of all of this, this looking back and the looking forward, is to remind us that Jesus is the nexus of all history. His his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection is the focal point of everything. It's it's everything that we, we anticipate. It's everything that we look back at. It is the center of everything that that happens. And he will judge all injustice. He will redeem and restore 
everything. He's the Savior of everybody who comes to him in faith. And he is the one who brings the kingdom of God. So then, how is it that Jesus, the Messiah, is also an everlasting father? How do we get that description? Why does Isaiah use that as one of the four titles? Well, there's three things that are important to understand in this description, in this title. Number one, it is not the Messiah's role in the Godhead that Isaiah is referencing here. That's not what Isaiah has in mind is Jesus' role in the Godhead, but rather it's the Messiah's character toward us that he wants us to grasp. Even though he's the son and he is the anointed Messiah, he still has the character of a perfect, holy, everlasting father. God's character is the anointed's character. It couldn't be any other way. So the Messiah is holy, he's pure, he's fulfilled, and he is the one who fulfills, and he's without deficiency. Therefore, the Messiah, Jesus, can be and is the perfect father type for anyone who will come to him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I keep going back to this during this series. I think this is an important passage to understand who the Messiah is, and here we have it again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses and everything that goes along with those weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Here's the second thing about Jesus as everlasting father. More than any Old Testament prophet or writer, Isaiah speaks of the exalted, sovereign, and divine nature of the Messiah. Lots of Old Testament uh, writers do this, but nobody does it more than Isaiah. This language of everlasting father fits right in with that that concept of exalted, divine, and eternal. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one born, and he is God. He's not just the son of God. He is God, and he is eternal. He is the creator and author of this universe and of this word. He is the living word. And everything else is going to perish, but he is going to live forever. His kingdom is going to live forever. And his people are going to live forever. And his word is going to live forever. Everything else will be gone. But all of those things that I just mentioned will live in his kingdom in joy and in beauty and in perfect communion. Now, there will be none of that in the place of darkness, in the place of pain, and in the place of torment. Again, Cody referenced this last week. This is the reality of the scriptures. This is the reality of the kingdom and the fact that there is also a place of eternal darkness called hell. There will be no everlasting father in hell. That's important to know and reflect on. There will be no help in hell. There will only be condemnation. And there will only be the rod and the staff. There's no father in hell, no help in hell. There is, however the everlasting Holy Father in his kingdom. And it is in heaven that we finally find that which our heart knows to be true 
and desires to experience. Every one of us has deep within our hearts, in our souls, that, that pre-Genesis 3, unfallen, uncorrupted knowledge or intuition or feeling that there is an eternal Father who is perfect and holy and wonderful, and that there, there is a, a place and there's going to be a place that, that, where, where everything is going to be redeemed and everything is going to be as it's supposed to be. And this knowledge that we know that no matter how good it gets on, on this earth and in this world for us, no matter what kind of a wonderful day you and I could have, it's still not fulfilled and complete because of the corruption of sin. But what's coming is beautiful. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Here's the coming of the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes again. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why is it important that the sea was no more? Because the sea is symbolic in ancient apocalyptic writing of darkness and evil and sin. So the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon references the fact that deep within our hearts and our souls, we know this is true, that there is an eternal goodness that is coming and that is available to us. And then number three, notice that in verse 6, this everlasting father was born into this world. This is a key part of this. Jesus, the Messiah, did a lot of things when he was here on earth, and we talk about them all the time. We read the Gospels, we study them, we proclaim them, and we rest in them. Two of those things, however, are directly at issue here as Isaiah calls him the everlasting father. Number one, good fathers sacrifice for their children. And Jesus obviously made the sacrifice of sacrifices for us at the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. The great theologian Herman Bavink writes this, Jesus takes away our guilt and again opens the way to God's fatherly heart. Everything you've ever dreamed a father could be, everything you've ever wanted from your relationship with your earthly father, Jesus is and will be for you. Your Messiah will forever be per perfectly father-like in the way he shepherds and leads you. In Jesus, you have a perfect father now, forever. The second item is that Jesus' life, though he was a single man with no biological children of his own, was a display of the Father's character and teaching. Now, I'm going to read some passages to you. All of these passages are just from the Gospel of John. I'm not even going outside of the Gospel of John for this. This is just from the Gospel of John, and I didn't use all the ones from the Gospel of John either. I wanted to have you stay with me and track with me, but just listen to these. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 
John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49 and 50, Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. For what, uh, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In John 14, 8 through 11, one of my favorite ones, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus, I'm guessing a little bit exasperated at this point, said to him, Philip, have I, been, uh, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And of course, John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. And the way the Greek is constructed there, he's saying, we're the same essence. We're both God. So every characteristic that the Father has is also present in Jesus. If you want to know what Father God is like, look at Jesus. Merciful, loving, and gracious. I referenced Genesis 3 earlier. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit and violate that one commandment of relationship with God, and, and sin now enters into the human condition. And they suddenly realize that, that they're naked and they try to hide from each other. And they cover themselves up. All of their intimacy has been violated. All of their authenticity has been violated. Nothing's ever going to be the same again. Uh, God then comes and he pronounces a series of curses as a result of this sin now coming into uh, creation and corrupting everything, not just uh, you and I and our relationships and our relationship with God, but all of creation is corrupted uh, by sin. And, and he pronounces these curses, and he starts with the adversary, Satan, and then he moves to the woman, and then he moves to the man. And I've, I've often said, and, and this is important to understand, the curses that you see in Genesis 3 are not comprehensive. They're only representative. But the curse of original sin is thoroughly comprehensive. And I don't think you need the modifier thoroughly for comprehensive, but I threw it in there anyway just to make my point. But when he's, when he's talking to the woman and pronouncing the curses, these representative curses on the woman, one of the things he says in verse 16 is, your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. Now, I know that some people read that, and they read into it some measure of sexuality. Your desire will be for your husband. That is not what God is talking about. Because of the fall, because of the corruption of original sin, the fact that males are physically stronger than females, that has also been corrupted. Uh, prior to the corruption of sin, men lived in perfect harmony with females and all of their strength and, 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 and power was under control and directed as a blessing toward everything else. But now under the corruption of sin, men tend to use that power and that strength uh, in a way that is abusive 
and hurtful. And that isn't exactly right. We may think it's right at times, but it's not exact because we have that power. Your desire will be for your husband. Your desire is going to be for the power that he has over you, but he's still going to rule over you. Now, understand that when it comes to this challenge that we have with some of our fathers, that's a big part of it. The corruption of sin has indwelled Women, too. We can talk about you guys, too. Maybe sometime in January. I'll get to you. But it has indwelled the men. And this is one of the problems. And there are even times when, as fathers, we think we're doing what's right. And we think we're exercising our power in a way that's right. And yet, it is abusive and sinful. And we're never sure where the line is because that line keeps moving. But one of the ways that we can check ourselves is to go to Jesus. This is why we have to go to Jesus. In Jesus, we find not only our redemption, not only our salvation, but we also find the character of what an everlasting father is going to be. Uh, I would never try to trivialize, minimize, or marginalize what some people have suffered at the hands of or in the presence of a father who does violence of any sort whether it's physical or emotional or any other category, and believe me, there are many other categories, including the category of neglect. As a pastor, that's something that I even have to deal with with people that I talk to. But understand, all of this will be redeemed, and it can be redeemed right now in Christ. But there's another side to this as well. It will also be judged one way or another. It'll either be judged at the cross, and you give your life to Jesus, and that gets judged there, and he takes that punishment, he takes that payment for that sin, or it's going to be judged through the condemnation of the abuser if he doesn't come to Christ. That's the plain and simple truth of Scripture. I can't make it any plainer for us, and I know that's tough stuff. I'll tell you, I I had a father who... Here you go. Context is important. Under today's standards, he might be accused of mild emotional abuse. Under today's standards, he might be accused of mild emotional abuse. My father was a Depression-era World War II vet, and he was a father during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, Very few of you remember those days, but for those of you who weren't alive during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Take it from me. Things were different then. They were way, way, way different. The Bee Gees were a hot musical group in the 70s. Things were different back then. Okay? And, and some of his perspectives just wouldn't be acceptable today. Some of the things that he said would be anathema today. And it was just part of his culture and part of his generation at the time. But here's the thing. God redeemed him. And he also redeemed my relationship with my father. In, in my late 20s and in, into my early 30s, my father and I did not speak to each other for four years, even though we lived a mile and a half away from each other. Did not speak for four years. And Jesus gave me a heart of repentance 
understanding and forgiveness. And amazingly, Jesus gave my father that same heart as well. Our last 15 years together were, were the sweetest that we had together. Uh, one of the things that I had to remember and understand was that he was of a different generation, he was of a different era, and he was of a different ethos. And that's not an excuse. It just makes a difference, and we need to recognize that. My father suffered through and grew up during the Great Depression. That changed a lot of people in that generation. You have no idea how it changed people. Um, there... That generation, their occasional harshness was often undergirded by a fear of unsustainability that you and I will probably never experience in our lives. I remember my mom telling me one day that during the Depression, for you to ask a neighbor to borrow a tablespoon of sugar was verboten couldn't even ask a neighbor to borrow a tablespoon of sugar. That's how tight things were then. He grew up in that. My mother did too. He also fought on the front lines of an extraordinarily violent war. He served three years, 42 through 45, in the Pacific Theater of World War II. He was a gunnery officer on uh, the USS Farragut, a destroyer that was decommissioned in 1996 in um, Seattle. And he saw some awful things. He, he was um, part of the group that tried to rescue um, the men of the um, uh, Indianapolis after their ship was completely destroyed and there were seven or 800 of them uh, in the Pacific Ocean waiting for rescue and they were huddled in a circle and the, and the goal was to get to the middle of the circle because the ones on the outside of the circle were the ones getting picked off by the sharks and he witnessed much of that. Wrote a book about it. Later, he was also, uh, the Farragut was docked in the Philippines when the um, atomic bombs were delivered to the Philippines, which were eventually used. He's, he's seen some things that I don't think any of us could really understand or, or appreciate. He, he, he had PTSD before anybody ever started diagnosing that. I'm sure of it. I'm sure he did. Some of his Nightmares were, were, were extraordinarily frightening and violent. Yet God got to him. It took decades, but God got to him. Jesus, the everlasting father, after decades and decades, captured his heart. My dad was 82 years old when God saved him. 82. And the Holy Spirit had been ministering to him, I know, even longer before that. Um, on, in June of 2015, I did his memorial service out at the Veterans Memorial Cemetery up on North Cave Creek. And I got to tell you, it was an amazing, amazing time. Jesus, everlasting Father, the Hound of Heaven, and the Redeemer of everything. Everything. I want to end by reading to you a, a historical incident that's not about a bad father, but maybe about somebody even worse than a bad father. But I love this story because it demonstrates the forgiveness found in the grace of Christ through the cross of Christ. Uh, this is written by Corrie ten Boom. Uh, Corrie and her sister Betsy were 
uh, eventually arrested for harboring uh, Jews in their homes during uh, the Nazi occupation of, of Holland, and they were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And, and later on, Corrie Ten Boom wrote a book about this, and, and I'm going to read a passage out of it, and we'll end with this. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear in that they most needed to hear in that bitter, bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next moment, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes at the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation in Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and I remembered his leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives also proclaims that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had, 
excuse me, since the end of the war, I had, ha I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Jesus, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's pray together. God, when we look upon the cross and we see the sacrifice, that you were specifically born to go to, that was your purpose. As the band sung earlier, from the manger to a tree, as we look upon that cross, we should recognize that there has never in the history of humanity been such an intense love as that moment, that your son would give his life so that we could have life. God, thank you for that. Help us to live a life of gratitude and forgiveness in the wake of what you have done for us.